So, Desiree, I've been doing some research. Really? In all of that free time you have from being hugely in demand and successful, I'm quite surprised. Um, what exactly have you been researching, Makita? I took my time uh, because last week we were talking about the Haitian Revolution and Gregory, the professor, the expert, kept mentioning the Maroons and the Maroon communities, right? Yeah, yeah, he did. I remember that. Yeah. So you've been looking into the Maroons? I've been looking into the Maroons and they are amazing. Like, if you imagine that the ultimate goal is to get the fuck away from slavery, these guys actually did it. So, Desiree, did you know who the Maroons are? Okay, look, I'll be honest. I did not when he was mentioning it, you know. I was just like, I, you know, like, you you hear, like, in America, the Redcoats were the British. So I was just like, the Maroons, were they some army that was wearing maroon? Is this, like, color guard? Why are they Maroons? But then, uh, because I knew we were doing this, I did look it up, so I know who oh, they no. are Oh, the, these are, <laughs> no, no, these are our people. Yes. These are four million slave people who managed to get the fuck away from all the white people nonsense and then build their own communities, build their own societies, and all this was going on everywhere, literally everywhere there was slavery, all over the Caribbean, where I'm from, um, in the States where you're from, Desiree, and also our siblings in Latin America. Desiree, no one talks about slavery in Latin America. Well, I feel like nobody talks about Latin America in general in a very Anglo-centric kind of culture, which both of us have grown up in. You know, everybody like everything in Latin America is like, oh, there's a problem. And nobody talks about our interactions there. And I guess we very much focus on the British in the slave trade and Americans, but we don't talk about the Spanish and all of that influence uh, south of the equator. We're getting into it today, though. Today's the day we're going to talk about it, Desiree. We're going to talk about how these maroon communities got free. Oh, that's amazing. I think we all need to hear that right now. I'm Makita Oliver. And I'm Desiree Birch. And this is Escape, the Underground Railroad podcast. A collection of stories about the rebellions, escapes and uprisings of our enslaved ancestors served alongside the powerful and evocative Amazon Prime video limited series, The Underground Railroad. We're going to be exploring the strengths, struggles, and strategies of our ingenious inventive ancestors, the real-life formidable heroes throughout history who never backed down in the face of brutality. So we know that there were Maroons in America and Jamaica, which we'll hear more about later, but we really don't know about the Latin American Maroons. So to help us get to the bottom of all of this, we have Kahindi Andrews. Kahindi, thank you so much for joining us. Happy to be here. Kahindi Andrews is an academic, activist, and author currently working at Birmingham City University as the first Black Studies professor in the UK. He is the author of three books, including The New Age of Empire, How Racism and Colonialism Still Rule the World. Would you mind briefly telling us a bit about maroon communities in the US? Because I'm really curious about that. Yeah, so Maroon is because is, it, it covers a large group. So you have like these massive settlements like Palmeiras or you have Nanny Town in Jamaica. But then you also have like much smaller Maroon communities. And this is anytime someone runs away and sets up a little settlement, that would effectively be a Maroon community. Mm. And in America, there's lots of them, like in the swamps in New Orleans, people would just go and run into the swamp and go live in the swamps. But like it's, in America, it tends to be smaller because it is, you know, the state and the, the country and it's bluntly white people are everywhere, right? So it's, it's more difficult to have a major settlement but you will ha- you had lots and lots of stories of people just going into the swamp into the hills and just setting up their own little communities where they could be free 
Well, and and would these communities then necessarily be associated or called qualified as maroon communities? Like I'm thinking about knowing about Zora Neale Hurston's story. She grew up in Eatonville, Florida, which was like an all black community where she didn't get that same, you know, ingrained sense of inferiority that most black people got in America because she saw black people doing any and everything. And I know that she then went and did a lot of anthropological work, uh, you know, that covered a lot of different areas of the sort of black diaspora. Maroon is, covers everything, basically, for, whether it be Caribbean, Latin America, America. So certainly, yeah, Zora Neale Heston's community. What do we know about Latin American maroon communities? Well, the largest maroon community was in Brazil. We shouldn't be a surprise because we do forget Brazil. Brazil was the place where between 38% and 52% of all people who were enslaved went to Brazil. It's like the, wow. the home, it's like the main place, right? Which is why Brazil has the largest black population of any country outside of Nigeria, right? I mean, yeah. Brazil is probably yeah. like wow. home of the mecca of the black world really is Brazil. Well, and that's in, amazing. So, and the party is language because they speak Portuguese and we're yeah. Anglo-centric, so we don't talk about them. So by 1695, they had this massive community called Palmeiras. And in Brazil, the term they use is Quilombo for the communities. It started in 1605 with literally 40 enslaved Africans ran away, escaped, went into the hills and then started different communities. And they would raid the sugar plantations. They would free other people. It just grew and grew and grew into this major settlement that started with about 40 people in 1605. And by the time the Portuguese destroyed it in 1695, the estimates are between 10,000 and 20,000 uh, formerly enslaved Africans lived in this in this community. That's insane, the multiplication of those numbers. And actually in Brazil, as I was in Brazil a couple of years ago, they still use the term Colombo and they use it to, mm. to talk about like they had, I went to an urban Colombo, which is an art space, which is uh, defined by blackness and black arts and culture. So even in that sense, it's still, it's still a term we still use. Whereas, I mean, it's not something that we educated in Brazilian culture, in Brazilian mainstream schools. But like in terms of how Brazilian people think, they still think in that term of Colombo, in terms of maroon, that we have to find spaces we can be free effectively. Exactly. So it's really talking about an energy and a spirit. That continues. Yeah, somewhere that you can disconnect from whiteness for a bit, basically. Sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> Wish there was one in Hackney. <laughs> yeah, seriously, we all need our local maroon Just chapter. One little area. <laughs> well, doesn't that word come from cimarron, or which is like wild or unkempt or whatever, or something like that, which could be a derogatory term, but also if it's like wild and unkempt, then you aren't to be tamed, you know, as a black person. Is that sort of like where that perpetuates from? Because I think that's something to be like embraced of like, you know, I'm a maroon. Yeah, 100%. I think the Spanish first use it. What happens in Jamaica when the British take over Jamaica in 1655, the enslaved run away and they become Cimarron. And that's where the, the term maroon comes from. And yeah, I guess white people probably mean it in, in a negative way, but yeah, we'd certainly something we'd, we'd embrace, right? We are. Yeah, yeah. yeah. take it back. Happy to be wild and unkempt. Right. So, okay, I just kind of want to understand this and how we get to this point. I mean, if my understanding of the transatlantic slave trade is correct, uh, these slaves would have probably come through the Caribbean because that was like a locus and then gone down to Brazil. Is that correct? Or did they go directly there? No. So Brazilian trade is direct. So it actually starts before the Caribbean. Um, the majority of the oh. enslaved, about 70% of the enslaved in Brazil are directly from Angola. Wow. And in fact, when Zumbi takes over, he renames Palmeiras. He calls it Angola Jenga. Uh, okay. Because so many of them were actually born in Angola and the culture's still there, they're vibrant. Um, so they actually saw themselves as being from Angola rather than slaves or Brazilian or anything like that. 
Okay, so they are more so than other slave groups from other countries able to retain an African identity that is probably helping to fuel some of this resistance. But do we know how they were able to get away from their enslavers in order to create this kind of society of their own? Yeah, so the territory is the big thing with Maroons, uh, particularly if you look at uh, Jamaica, where we have to, I'm sure we talk about Jamaican Maroons, they're so important. But in Brazil, imagine Brazil's a massive country. It has, it has hills, it has forests, yeah. and similar terrain uh, to what was in Angola. And so it was really guerrilla warfare tactics. So that's why you have mm. these kind of smaller settlements that become this large settlement. Um, and then because they knew the terrain mm. and, the, you, know, you know, Europeans like to, you know, red coats and they march in, in columns. That's just not, that's not how you do it when you're in no, the jungle. No, you need to be nifty. Not in the jungle. You don't walk around in a stuffy red coat that you're sweating in going, we're going to get them. It's like, we're going to pick you off immediately. They came badly attired from the start, Exactly. Right? So yeah, for a few basics, guerrilla warfare, they stay away from and, and out of the reach of the Portuguese. And that's actually what probably one of the things that leads to the end of Palmeiras is it becomes so big um, that it becomes a target. Whereas if it was smaller, it would be more difficult and mobile. You can move around, but it becomes like a, a state, basically. And then when okay. it's fighting as a state against another state, the Portuguese are able to overrun it. So it was kind of like the soldiers were the sitting ducks before because, you know, uh, they knew the sort of home court. But then once they got larger, they then became the sitting ducks. And that's how they were able to be. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. It's the year 1740. The location is Bridgetown, Jamaica. This sugar plantation is vast and oppressive. Here everything is violent and seemingly hopeless. I know that my people are worth more than this. This is not who we are. We were born for more. It's the dead of night. The air is still. Cicadas cry. Fireflies light the path. My heart pounds in my chest as I lead my brothers along the edges of the plantation, keeping low to the ground. We make a break for it, to the mountains, to freedom. So, Makita, who is this that we're hearing from now? This, Desiree, is Granny Nanny. Queen mm. Nanny, Nanny of the Maroons. She was she was just a badass. I think that's yeah. the only way to put it. Yeah. Like if shit's going down, you want Nanny on your side. I want to know so much more. Yes. So tell us, Kendi, what do we know? What do you know about Makita's and now my new obsession? Who was Nanny exactly? How did she come to be in Jamaica in the first place? So Nanny or Queen Nanny is certainly, if I could meet one person from history, it would be Nanny. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Like, just <laughs> yeah. a fascinating story. As a Jamaican, like, we all know about Nanny. So, like, when people don't know about Nanny, it's really strange to me because, like, we just grew up with Nanny stories. Nanny's, like, yeah. superhero number one in the household. And Nanny was a, she was born in, in Africa and was now Ghana. Uh, she's part of the Ashanti, which is part of the Akan group, which is a, a bigger group of different tribal affiliations, I guess you call it. Ashanti is really important to Generally, it's just really important. You call it ethnic group kingdom in West Africa that has a long history of fighting Britain. So when Britain takes over Ghana, it's the, after they beat the Ashanti, uh, people like Yara Santiwa, who's, who's later on in the 19th century, it says it's kind of, they have this real spirit of resistance in the Ashanti. So Nanny's taken into, into slavery and she escapes and joins the Maroons. Remember, the Maroons have been free in Jamaica since 1655, living and, and freeing people. Mm-hmm. Um, and Nanny's credited specifically, and her, and her brother as well was also taken into slavery and also escaped and also led a maroon community. Yes, yeah. It's just, it's kind of special family, right? Like, mm-hmm. well, yeah, in some yeah. ways, because the brother's a bit a bit more complicated, uh-huh. I should say. Okay. So Nanny is credited with really organizing the maroons. Again, guerrilla warfare. 
the layout is very similar to the layout that she was, she was used to. It only took six of uh, Nanny's maroons to take down a whole British battalion when they came from the <laughs> Oh, <Australia. my> God. <laughs> wow. I mean, that's both amazing and like bad Britain like ooh, that's gotta hurt yeah it's that red coats when they're walking out it's, it's the red it's, it's a bad it's a bad omen I think I mean we know we know that for a fact that there was just six of them and they took on an army a British yeah a whole battalion we take a whole battalion because of the uh, the terrain it's, it's, it's mountain it's it's just not you know walking with the bay and it's not going to get you very far it's like you're you're walking up a mountain in a red coat like they haven't I'm assuming they don't know about camouflage yet you're coming up a mountain like it's a trail of fire ants like just anything you shove down the hill is going to get them also, I love the fact that it's like this thing, that this common problem that will always come up, which is if you go to someone else's island to take them, they know where they're at. You're on their turf. They can yeah. get you, they outsmart you. You know what I mean? It's like you're on my land yeah, in 100%. the wrong coat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's similar to Zumbi in Brazil. Nanny doesn't want to give up. She's saying we have to keep fighting the British. She's credited for freeing about a thousand people, is the estimate that maybe Nanny's personally responsible for freeing like about a thousand of the enslaved because they'd raid the plantations and, and, and be a home for runaways. So she became a really big problem for the British. She's why she wanted Jamaica's national heroes, actually. She's like a statue in Jamaica of her and she's on the money and things like that. There should be statues of her in a lot of places, right? actually. Yeah. I mean, you've spoken about the Ashanti tribe and their traditions, but like just more about them and the Akan group, I, I don't know, coalition group sort of uh, of tribes. Like what kinds of, you know, what kind of people are they? Like what's what's their religion or culture or language, you know, the present day location of them? Anything that we can know more about where she's coming from? Akan generally in Ashanti particularly is, is Ghana, what we say modern, is now modern day Ghana. Resistance and rebellion is just a really important thread because actually even like in contemporary land, Ghana is kind of the probably most Pan-African country, you know, Gavi is in red, black and green. The Ashanti are generally accepted to kind of be this sense of warrior resistance spirit. So in some ways the communities uh, then felt like the communities do now actually in black communities, like when we think about particularly like the the heavy kind of matrilineal focus, uh, the matriarchy. So matriarchy is overplayed. What that basically means is that women could be have power, right? Because we live in this society where that's so that's so strange. But growing up, we just always hear about strong black women, uh, whether it be Nanny, whether it be Yara Santiwa and Ashanti, or even uh, Queen Nzinga in Angola. That's just the stories that we kind of grew up with. And the Akan people generally, Ashanti in particular, um, had this, you know, women were such a huge part of the not just the community but the leadership of the community so nanny being this leader of, of this is not rare at all and even after like that i think i mentioned yara santiwa before who comes later but one of the quotes she says is the men of the Ashanti aren't doing nothing so the women are going to step in and then took up arms and went and fought the british i love black women i love powerful black women because like this hearing about nanny is, is new to me but it's very Hearing about this part is very reminiscent of hearing about Harriet Tubman and literally through ingenuity and violence freeing so many people. It's not enough for her to be free. It's, you know, she's got to go back and free every person that she can possibly try to free from this horrible thing. So I just love that there are these parallels throughout different societies and areas of enslaved people of like women specifically being like, oh, no, 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 no. Like, we're going to go back yeah. and get everybody's coming. <laughs> Yeah, and also violence is a key thing as well. Like we often like associate violence with men. Ah, some of these women, they, they, were, they were not afraid to go down and get. And like on the so would it be the front lines? In this case, the front lines is actually going and doing raids. Nanny was doing that to the end. Like that was just part of what they had to do. What she did, right? 
I mean, I had read in some places that it was unclear whether or not Nanny was uh, enslaved on that boat or like if she was like a, a queen or something. Nanny certainly had a position of authority. I mean, we just kind of put queen on it because it sounds like it makes it sound regal. I mean, I think the idea that she wasn't enslaved is, again, kind of this mythology. I mean, she certainly mm, was enslaved. Also okay. reminds us slavery took everybody. It weren't just like slavery would just they would yeah. just take you if they could take you. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so yeah. But yeah, the... That that queen thing is part of the mythology as well, I think, around around Nanny. In Jamaica in particular, when we think about like African culture and roots to Africa, we use a lot of Akan symbols. In fact, we have an organization, a Rambi organization of Black Unity, and the symbol we have is an Akan symbol, which is um a Miami Name and I'm gonna say it wrong. But it means interdependence. Okay. <laughs> so and the Sankofa, it's the African spiritual idea that the dead aren't gone, right? So the ancestors are with you. you yeah. the, the Sankofa bird has two heads. One looks forward and one looks back. Wow. So the past is always with us. And so actually a lot of the things that we, that we when we say African culture, we actually mean Asante or Akan generally. Because West it. Africa was the place where the majority of the enslaved were taken from. I feel like that answer just freed some part of my soul I didn't know was locked up. Thank you for sharing that. That's so incredible. Um, and that was a big part of the resistance in the Maroons. So similar to Haiti and similar to saying with the the Palmeiras is, is that link to Africa is really important. Actually, yeah. like culturally, it's, it is actually a different space. When you go to Maroon Town, Nanny Town in Jamaica now, it, it feels different uh, because yeah. it, it is a, really is a different space, not defined by whiteness in the same way. So how do you think these characteristics that we've learned about the Akan tribe, how do you think they would have played into who Nanny became? It's completely, 100% it is who Nanny is in terms of her beliefs. One of the ways in which the... British tried to, and, and successfully did actually, scare off a lot of the enslaved from people like the Maroons and people like Nanny was by playing up the witchcraft element. Like obia is a term we use in, in Jamaica. Uh, voodoo would be, I would say, in Haiti. But like, they really demonized that use of traditional African religion. <laughs> <laughs> like White in... people demonized witches? No, you don't say. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's not like that bewitched uh, kind of witch, is it? It's that yeah. kind of scary black magic. Like It's all evil. Of course, it, well, yes, scared of our magic constantly. Um, but that was such an important part of what gave them the strength. But it's used against... And you have these these ridiculous things about, like, Nanny could take bullets in a backside and fire him. It just becomes this this crazy misrepresentation yeah. of, the, of the thing. We're going to get back to the bullets in the bum later. <laughs> we really are. Big time. <laughs> uh, so listen, okay, Nanny takes on the British and won, which is a wonderful sentence to say. Uh, but how do you win against the British as an escaped slave? And we talked about the terrain and the fact that she knows where she's at, and but she doesn't have guns, she doesn't have kit. How does she actually defeat an army with her five mates? She does have the power to call the British people racist and then they'll go, oh, uh, uh, sorry, <laughs> yeah. and then get back on their boats and row backwards all the way back. Yeah. Uh, that to... was it, right? White did. fragility, yeah. She, 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 used the... <laughs> she saw that coming up the hill. She was like, I got I got some for you. <laughs> but, no, but, but, but seriously, Kindy, what, what, what did Nanny do to defeat an army? So partly it's communications. There's a, a horn called the Abeng, uh, actually, one of the first black newspapers in the UK was called the Abeng. It was the ability to be mobile, to know what was happening, to know what was coming. So they'd have lookouts and the British wouldn't be able to see them because they'd be, they'd be just dotted everywhere. And they could then communicate with each other over miles and miles and miles and they could be mobile. With these horns? Yeah, that's a horn. It's like a big, like a, wow. like a horn that they could use. Which is, again, something very, very direct from Africa, what they would use there, the same kind of tactics. And they had weapons. They didn't have guns, obviously, but they had weapons, which then they weren't afraid to, to use those weapons. But it's more close quarters weapons. It is sneaking in. It is the guerrilla 
tactics. It is by surprise. It is setting traps. It is um, just knowing the terrain and leading them astray into into, into difficult patches where they couldn't where they couldn't move, and then having them trapped. It's guerrilla warfare one on one, basically, um, which they were very good at. And takes a little bit of ingenuity. Yeah, it's not simple. It's not a simple no. at all. But you see what you see across the. All of actually the Caribbean and the Americas is that use of guerrilla warfare. Not in the case of slavery in particular, but the one of the things which causes the genocide in the Americas is the resistance. Because the British can't, they know they can't win this. We, we actually can't win this. So they just start killing everybody. And it's, it's a kind of this tactic where you go, we can't beat them. So we're just going to wipe everybody out. And you see that played out across the world, actually. Well, I mean, there's no, it's like one group is fighting for the survival of their bodies, their children, their culture. The other group is fighting for money and profit. Like, I think that the drives are going to be really stronger, much stronger on one side than the other. And then they're like, well, there's a queen who's going to be like, get me my money. And so they're going to sort the rest out, I imagine. Let's talk about the bullets in Bali. It's time. <laughs> I think it's time. <laughs> well, okay, wait a second. Now, I had read that she was able to catch them in her hands. So I feel like the bum, you know, I mean, it's debatable whether or not you can do that. You know, like I'm sure David, but you know, people like David Blaine, they're illusionists. You know, they can make a way for that to look right. Like she's not trying to put on and make the Statue of Liberty disappear. Do you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, she's not trying to put on a show. Yeah, but like I imagine that the bum thing just comes from a regular old sort of misogynoir, you know, it's just like, oh, she made her booty clap around the bullets and stuff. You know, it's like, who's going to turn their back on a bullet? Like nobody. If she, like they just had to make her sound magical because obviously like, you know, it's like a matriarchal in some ways, like sort of lineage. And she knows stuff about herbs and like she has that witchcraft that yeah. they're trying to demonize. So it's like, why not create a, another fantastical story around her? Like, is there any basis to it though <laughs> no so what they would have done is there is like a, a mythology that i grew up with the mythology as well around nanny like you know she's almost his godlike figure because they, she could train people to be a whole battalion with six with six people right like it's a it's a feat like it's always yes, it it is. Is superhuman right yeah. so there certainly is a kind of mythology and what the british did was they took that mythology and then twisted it so that's when you get the misogynoir the, the bot she's a witch all this stuff for us yeah. it wouldn't have been that at all but they twisted yeah. it and then promoted it and it is I think it's really powerful my dad who is certainly one of the most radical people i know he won't go to maroon town at night He's terrified like that. I'll go, I'll go in the day, but at night I'm going there. Oh, just like the witchcraft element, like the yeah, spiritual. Yeah, just... Okay, okay. I, I'm sure she did have a great bum there, right? <laughs> <laughs> Come on, Nanny's not going to have a not great bum. Yeah, the story <laughs> legends are made up. I mean, if she's living up in a mountain, you like even if you don't start with a good bum, if you're bringing right? people up a mountain, you're going to get a good bum by the time you're yeah. done with that, right? Glory and a great ass. Yeah, her squats okay. and lunge game was strong. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So there is obviously this mystical side to her and, and a sort of reverence and definitely the way that she's talked about. There's this other story that I read where she and the Maroons were on their last legs and then about to die of starvation and about to hand themselves over to the British. But she hears the voice, Nanny hears the voice of her ancestors saying, hold on one more day, finds these pumpkin seeds, plants them. And then within a day, they've got full pumpkins to eat to keep them alive, which is obviously this, again, a fantastical story with a lot of imagery of sort of ripeness and colour and, you know, nourishment, which you want for them and you want it to be that fantastical. But is, is it just playing into the same themes we've already discussed? Like a day? In a day? <laughs> there were, it was the great pumpkin patch? <laughs> no, but I think that's the, the example of like... Um... 
I mean, look, what probably happened was he probably did find food for them, but it got turned into this other story. But I think that's kind of the, the positive mythology. I mean, we call it Pumpkin Hill, actually, Jamaica. It's a, it's a place, right? But it is this mythology around her where I don't think we really believe it happened, but even there, I'm just saying there's a 5% chance maybe it yeah, didn't happen. I don't know. Could have, could have happened, I hate you. Right? Where does that kind of stuff come from? Do you think that it originates like in some grain of truth? Because it just seems really wild. Yeah, because I, I, I imagine they were starving and she found the food. Would be my guess. That's the truth of it. And then the the how she found the food became this other thing. But also remember that in our kind of beliefs that the dead are still with us, that you can pray to the ancestors. Mm, it's not. Yeah. It, who knows? It actually yeah. might have happened. Like I mean, that yeah. is a belief that wouldn't be so alien to a lot of people nowadays as well. No, I talk to my great great grandmother. Absolutely, keep those people close. Yeah. So they get up into the mountains. What's their life like in this maroon settlement? So life in Nanny Town, it wouldn't have been the easiest, right? I mean, it's mm. obviously you don't have the most resources, you're cut off. It's village life. I mean, I think one of the things that we have to always remember with the Maroons is the settlements grow and it's always growing. Um, and the reason it's growing is because they're freeing other enslaved, right? They would go and raid the plantations and take people. They'd, people would just run away. In fact, that's how Nanny got this. She just ran away and, and, and ran up into the hills. Um, and so it's always growing. I think Nanny is personally supposed to have been... Around, especially responsible for around a th- freeing a thousand people from slavery during this time. So it was a growing, expanding community uh, because of that. But it wouldn't have been so different from we're talking about. This is what 18th century. So generally, people lived in they lived in like village kind of places with hot huts and fire, and they they fought, they got their own food. But it wasn't that you know it probably wasn't that distinct from how people were lived in Ghana at the time, right? Like this isn't nowadays. So we yeah. probably can't imagine what it was like, but it probably wasn't that different to. But it was like it's hard to farm on a mountain, right? Like how did they <laughs> subsist? You know. That's where knowing the terrain is important. So knowing where the water is, there's knowing the fruit as well. I mean, okay. especially like Jamaica, like knowing the fruit, knowing what you can eat, knowing what you can hunt, and yeah. all the hunted stuff. And also the other thing they did, they stole. They stole a lot from Good. the plantations. They yes. really did raid the plantations to get right. their food. Took well. people and some food. Yeah, well, and it's they like they things. stole us. Right. Yeah, <laughs> Let's steal all their stuff. We'll take your chicken. Yeah. Um, well, I read that they started jerk cooking. This is where the method of jerk chicken came about. So they had pork, they would cook pork, but wanted to minimise the smoke and not draw attention from the British. So they covered the fire pit and that was literally how jerk was born in Nanny Town. That's not mythology, that was true. That's that was amazing. true. Yeah. That's, so That's why it tastes true. so good as well. That's yeah. why it tastes so good. No, but actually. <laughs> yeah. I like came to this country and I'm like, jerk chicken. And I didn't know I should be so like excited and proud about this method of cooking. I was mostly just like, do I want food with flavor and seasoning? If so, I'll yes, be please. eating a lot of jerk chicken <laughs> because everything else is boiled. <laughs> That's resistance. Spice, putting spice on your food is resistance. Seriously, yes. It's an act of revolt every day. (laughs) So we're in Nanny Town and, you know, it's not ideal, but it is a life that they've created for themselves. It's a community. It's a society that they've created for themselves. And I'm sure that independence is, you know, a a, a hugely preferable way to live for them at this point. But then things get complicated because there's this treaty with the British, which just doesn't sound good. What's the deal with the treaty, please, Kahindi? Yeah, so unfortunately... Like you find across many maroon communities, eventually there is this, look, we can't, they're just going to keep coming. We can't beat them. Uh, so what do we do? Uh, we basically try to protect ourselves and they sign treaties. I mentioned a brother earlier, uh, Kujo. In Jamaica, there's two maroons. There's the Leewood maroons, which is Kujo's maroons. And there's the Windwood maroons, which is Nanny's maroons. Oh. And he sold out early, early. Like He like really like was like, yeah, let's just give up. Signs a treaty in 1739. 
And I was reading through it today, actually, just the preparation. It's, it's terrible. It's not just that they'll stop raiding, they'll stop, they'll return runaways. If runaways come to them, they'll turn them back. And they'll actually support the British in quelling rebellions and things like this. And actually, the, the Maroons are heavily involved in quelling pretty much every rebellion in Jamaica after that. I guess I have to ask, why do you think that Nanny and, I mean, Kujo to a certain extent would agree to these treaties? Like if Nanny's already beating these guys, sorry, beating them off is not the way to say this. If <laughs> already beating the British back and like they're losing all this stuff. And, you know, she's, you know, absconded with more and more slaves to build this community up uh, on the mountain. Like why sign the treaty? They now know the tactics to make this work. And presumably she doesn't want to stop saving other enslaved people from that predicament when she's signing that right away. When I was talking to a few people about did Nanny sign this treaty? That's heresy in Jamaica. Like, I don't know if that oh. happened. I, I, as far as I, I learned that Nanny had nothing to do with this treaty oh. and she was dead long before it happened. But oh. I have been looking into it and I, it's okay. a bit cloudy whether Nanny was around. One of the oh. I did do, I actually found, I, I, I was reading the actual treaty. She definitely never signed it. It was Captain Quo who signed okay. it. Nanny may have been alive. I'm not sure. But it definitely wasn't her who signed it. And this is what this is, this is like. Gotcha. People, people are really bad. What I said, people, I said, Nanny was signed. People got really bad. So I have to say that as far as I know, she didn't personally sign it, but she may have been around. It's possible. I think what? the reason was, let's assume she was around and involved. What essentially happens is because they are so successful, like in uh, Brazil, and they become so large, it's 1733, and this is when she might have died. This is when the story is that she died. I see. Uh, the British basically just annihilate Nanny Town. They just destroy it. It's gone. Like, uh... say, that, it's going to go. I've heard she died then, but we're not sure. So they're on the run for a big part of that. After that, then Kujo gives up. So the other Maroons say, nah, we're just going to, we're going to sell out anyway. So you're in a situation where maybe you want to resist, but you don't really have that much of a choice anyway. So I think that's why the, the Windmill Maroons end up signing the, signing the treaty. Yeah, and oh. she's kind of standing in the gap in a certain way of like, she's the one sort of maintaining a lot of tradition, a lot of the connection to the ancestors, that sense of power and trust that they have is kind of tied up in her as this mythical figure. So if she's not in charge or she's right. dying, I can see why people might be like, none of us can ever do what Nanny did. So let's get do the best we can, can yeah. get. I think you want to preserve, at some point you want to preserve what you have. And Nanny, you know, yeah. Maroon Town is, is special. It's still there, it still exists. It was obviously, I mean, it's, it's really bad after that, the history of what how the Maroons are involved in oh, question no. rebellions, but oh. I, it's, it's a difficult, it's like it's like when it comes to Africans sold over Africans. Yeah, this is true, it's like, but you have a system that exists, you do the best you can do to survive. It's more complicated than just, you shouldn't do that, right? Were there any positives in this treaty? Was there, was there one sentence that said, we will look after your firstborn, or if you need fruit, we'll get that? Like, was there anything, <laughs> anything that was looking good for them in this treaty? Um, yeah, no, it protected them. No, it, sorry, it did. It protected them. It said that white people would be punished for crimes if they came and, and essentially protected them. It said, well, once you sign this treaty, you'll be protected by Britain. You'll be respected as, as humans, effectively. We won't mess with you. You don't mess with us. And that's why they did it. I mean, I, again, I can look back and judge, but if you compare that to Palmeiras, had Ganga Zumba signed his treaty, Palmeiras would still exist. Exactly. Because he did it, and Zumbi went off, and it, it's gone now, right? destroyed. So, I don't know, pick your poison, I'm not sure. Pick your battles quite <laughs> yeah. literally. So, yeah. would you uh, give us any kind of examples of how and when and where this treaty was put into place, like, you know, when this was actually acted upon? So, pretty much straight away. So, when the Nanny's Maroons are on the run, they want to unify, they go to Kujo, Kujo's a brother as well, so, and say, look, we should unify against the British. Because he signed this treaty, he's like, nah, nah we're not, no. So again, they're, they're on the run. And then 
after that, this all the initially all the rebellions. So the Sam Sharp Rebellion, which is the biggest rebellion in Jamaica, the Christmas Rebellion in eighteen thirty one, eighteen thirty two. It's the Maroons that helped to put that down after slavery ends. Uh, eighteen sixty five, the Paul Bogle's Rebellion. It's actually the Maroons that capture Paul Bogle and give him to the British. Like the Maroons, like from that day, they just become agents of, of, of Britain in a very disturbing way. And do you see that as a betrayal of? Nanny and everything that she and the early Maroons fought for? Like, how do you square the acting upon that treaty with their need to survive? Uh, and yeah, where do you place that in your in your teaching and your understanding of it? Hey, there's a long history of black people selling that. So I mean, I don't think we should be surprised. Like, I, mean, I can understand it. Don't get me wrong. Like, I, I get it conceptually, but that's <laughs> not what we should be doing, right? And it is, and unfortunately, one of the ways in which you know, slavery happens anyway in the first place and, you know, it continues to happen. And even today, if you think about some of the things which are happening now, yeah, there's lots of, there's always going to be opportunities to sell out black people. And there's always, unfortunately, going to be people that do that. So I think the Maroon, that that is, of course it's traitorous. Of course it's traitorous. Of course it's betraying the legacy of that, betraying the people. Even though I can say I understand why they did it. One of the reasons we're still in the situation we are in is because people take that opportunity far too often. Well, I guess, do you see it as like they were, this was specifically about self-preservation? Like, how much do you think that later Maroons were born into the sort of mental conditioning of this is our condition and this is what we have to do to survive versus like selling other people out for their own benefit? I know they're very closely related, but like, do you know what I mean? Like, in some ways, if you are born into a culture of this is your understanding of the way things work, it's different to knowing that there was a way things worked before and betraying that, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that is one of the reasons why Britain stopped uh, importing Africans, right? Because they didn't know what freedom was like. So, yeah, the subsequent Maroons are kind of just brought one into this. But even then, like, you can see what's happening. The conditions in Jamaica are terrible. Like, people, you should understand that. But there's a reason why Nanny is a national hero and no one yeah. talks about Kujo ever. Because as far as Jamaica's are concerned, Nanny did not sign. Nanny wasn't involved in the sell She was like, she was gone at this point. We hold on to Nanny because she is that symbol of resistance. And we, the Maroons generally are a bit complicated. Because of that history in Jamaica. This is something that I wanted to say, actually, as we as we get to the end. I think we need Nanny, and not only the memory of Nanny, but I think we need the slightly mystical memory of Nanny. I think it needs to be as magic as as it wants to be, because uh, me and Desiree have been learning, you know, so much about brutality and pain, and and this resistance is something that's so important throughout this podcast. But then to add a bit of magic and fantasy on it, I don't know. I think these stories need that for the survival of hearing them and getting through them and living through them, you know? Yeah. So I, I'm down for it. It's been so interesting, actually, hearing about the Maroons today and, and Nanny, who I, I now need to... I mean, do, is there much imagery of her? There's, like, two pictures I've seen. Like, well, I don't even know if it's even Nanny. Like, it's, it's not wow. very much imagery. It's, it's what I said. I'm number one person I'm meeting in history just because we so, know so actual little about what she's said and what she looked like. It'd just be fascinating. And there definitely needs to be a movie. So somebody yeah, make a movie Yeah, it's like when Zoe right. Saldana does the movie, then there'll be all these new images. <laughs> 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 no, yeah, well, I mean, God bless her, but yeah. burn the cinema down. Get somebody Jamaican. <laughs> yeah, let's not cast Zoe Saldana <laughs> to do this. Nanny the film, though. Yes, absolutely. Yes, yes, immediately. Candy, thank you so much. It was wonderful talking to you today. Oh, thank you. Yeah, thank you. This was so inspiring. Thank you. 
If you haven't watched the Barry Jenkins series, it's poignant and powerful and on Amazon Prime Video now. Don't forget to follow or subscribe to the podcast. We'll be back next week with another story of an audacious escape. <laughs> 